0: you <music> Hello folks, warmest welcomes on a very bone chillingly cold November day to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales based true crime show that seeks out some of the more usually lesser known obscure cases, both the solved and the unsolved ones, from all over the UK and Ireland. The one bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts that make the show happen and make sure that my spare room gets used. And as always... It's fabulous having you joining me today. I thank you very much for it and I hope that the episode finds each and every one of you guys good and well. So many thanks for the responses and discussions that I've received and I've seen following the previous episode of the show, The Time Bomb. Now I know it's a bit of a controversial case that one and it's certainly not one to listen to while you're having your breakfast or your tea or whatever, lunch, whatever. I think it's caught a few people out that one did, and I'm not really surprised, because it was truly the stuff of nightmares that one, wasn't it? Peter Bryan's monstrous crimes, and it was definitely one of the worst that have been featured on the show since I began it. By the way, on a lighter note, I gather that my quote in that episode, an absolute shamble of bollocks... Was appreciated by many enough that some of you guys have gotten in touch about it, so I've decided to have some stickers containing that very legend printed, and they're coming very soon to watch this space. And I will make all of this stuff available for all of you guys soon, also, should you want it, not just limited for Patreon supporters. On the subject of Patreon, shout outs this week are going to new supporters Kane Wen Fredrickson hope that i've said that right samantha southern juliet mead vicky wilkinson suzanne miller the intriguingly named carnal flower and i know that i do know that it's not the same one but rose west as well thanks very much for your support guys it's very kind of you and very much appreciated if you want to join these folks and others in supporting the show then it's very straightforward and it doesn't cost very much at all as i said last episode it costs less than a poundland sex toy Which I even went into my local poundland because I live quite near it. And I went to have a look for one to take a picture to prove that they exist. And you know what? They'd sold out. Lucky Rex are mate. So for less than that debacle, depending on your chosen tier of course, you can have yourself some stickers, you can have a unique Danny drawing, I'm sure that you may have seen on like the work of my friend who does the Ace sketches that you may have seen based upon the show's episodes, and he also draws me into all sorts of escapades as well. So thanks very much for that, Dan. But all supporters do get access to the monthly bonus episodes of the show. There are rucker tales there including the Angel from Hell, the Tinkersdale Woods murder operation magnesium and death in highgate woods to name just but a few simply check out the link in the episode show notes or by heading over to the patreon site and looking up the true crime enthusiast podcast always make sure you get the podcast suffix on there and then you'll be away and listening faster than the flash on fast forward also this week once again i have a short message from the show's kind sponsor hellofresh Now do you despair of what to make for meals? You want to break away from the same old menu that you use every week, time in, time out, but you don't know where to start. You've got fussy kids, you've got an imagination block, and you think yourself a bit more Gordon Brown than Gordon Ramsay. HelloFresh can help you there. By signing up to the UK's leading recipe box service HelloFresh, You get delivered to your door your own choosing from a total of 19 wide-ranging multicultural different recipes each week that you not only get all of the perfectly portioned ingredients for the recipes that you've chosen in the box, but the recipes are also simple and step-by-step. For meals you can make if you're in a rush but you still want an iced tea, right through to meals that you can spend a bit of time on ensuring that the family will all enjoy HelloFresh Cater for you. You even have a worldwide selection of foods and with Christmas approaching they even look out for those who are watching their wastes. With it all delivered and on your kitchen table you haven't got the hassle of heading to the supermarket to shop for ambitious ingredients or worrying that will all turn out a disaster. Kanye West could make these meals, the step-by-step instructions are that simple and because they're perfectly portioned depending on the size of the family you're not wasting anything either. Now I've tried a HelloFresh box and the meals that I received I really did enjoy. I found them easy to do and well worth doing. The catered to someone like me who has got a bit of a wide range in taste. But I especially like that HelloFresh subscription is flexible. So you're not tied into a minimum term with them at all. And if you want to change aspects of your box, for example, you may want it bigger or smaller, or you may want it even delivered to a different address, then that's all catered for too. So as show sponsors once again this week, HelloFresh are offering you guys a total of £60 off four of these boxes. All you need to do is simply head over to www.hellofresh.co.uk. Once you're there, you choose your box and your suited delivery slot. You add your favourite recipes from the list there. And then when you check out, simply enter the code TRUECRIME to claim your £60 off the cost of four boxes. Sounds great that, doesn't it? Before you know it you'll be all over creating meals that you wouldn't have even dreamed of delivered to your doorstep thanks to HelloFresh. So this week then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there's a proper change of pace a completely different direction of the show and a bit of a hint nobody gets murdered this week Now the past couple of weeks, especially last week's episode, they've been a bit dark with two horrific accounts of triple murder. So to balance it out somewhat, you'll find this episode is a lot more light-hearted. I mean, you can't be eating people every week, can you? I've also stepped out of the writer's chair for this episode and I hand you over to a tale that was researched and written up solely by Julia Crane. A friend of the show, as I'm sure you'll remember, wrote the Friendly Neighbourhood Frankenstein episode earlier on this series. The account you're about to hear is a fascinating one that took place in Julia's hometown. I thought it was absolutely excellent to read, and I've added only minimal pieces to it just to suit my own narrative style. It's Julia's work which I pass on my deepest thanks and compliments to her for. Now if the episode titles intrigued you, well it does have everything mentioned in it this one. It goes from people riding tortoises right through to Metallica's master of puppets stopping off at golden flutes and fly fishing on the way. Even Ali G gets a mention. And no, I'm not having some sort of Beatles moment and I'm just taking something. I'm sure all will become clear throughout the episode. With that in mind, because there's no need for a disclaimer this week, Please join the true crime enthusiast and Julia as we look back at a case I've entitled The Feathers and the Golden Flute. On the evening of Tuesday the 23rd of June 2009 a man entered London's Euston station who like the great train robbers many years before him had spent many weeks meticulously planning a crime. The man was called Edwin Rist and he was a talented young American musician who, at the age of 20, was in his second year of study at the Royal Academy of Music in London. A prestigious institution attended by only those with natural and exceptional musical talent for musical performance. Its famous alumni include Elton John and Annie Lennox. Edwin Rist's talent lay in the flute, and upon graduating from the Royal Academy, he hoped to become an internationally renowned flute player. Now he was working hard on his studies to achieve this ambition but Edwin also had a very specific element to his dreams. He wanted to own a flute made of gold that he believed would see him through increasingly tough auditions into a job with a prestigious orchestra. He knew that a flute made of gold would cost him at least two thousand dollars but being only a student from a relatively modest financial background he had no means to make such a purchase. This is possibly what sowed the seed of a plan in his mind to commit a robbery. That summer evening in June 2009, Edwin Rist didn't stand out from any other commuters at Euston and nobody would have suspected the young man of any wrongdoing. Like the many other travellers that day, he checked his ticket and looked up at the announcement boards to see which platform he would need to travel to his destination. Going quietly about his business, Wheeled behind him the large suitcase he would be needing much later on that evening, made his way down to the correct platform, and boarded the London Midland train, making himself comfortable for the 35 minute journey ahead. Edwin was tired that day, having performed in a concert called London Landscapes earlier that afternoon, but his adrenaline was flowing because, unlike other travellers commuting home after work for dinner and a well earned rest, Edwin's intentions were a bit more sinister. Inside his wheeled suitcase he packed everything that he would need for his evening's activities including a pair of latex gloves, a small LED torch, a wire cutter and a diamond blade glass cutter. It was the 23rd of June 2009, the date that Edwin had selected to carry out the crime he'd been carefully planning for many weeks and dreaming about for many months. After his relatively short train ride, Edwin found himself at his destination, the small market town of Tring, on the border of the counties of Buckinghamshire and Hertfordshire. It's an ancient town named in the Doomsday Book, and today is reportedly a fantastic place to live, with a rural and quiet feel despite it being a relatively short train ride away from London. Whilst it's small, and comprises a high street of mainly small independent shops, there's also a lot going on in the town. It hosts annual comedy, book and music festivals that attract household names, has several renowned eateries including the now sadly closed but fantastically named Tring Tringfellows. And it's even featured as auction house on TV's Flog It, which is hangover TV at its best that is, trust me, if you've never seen it. Because of its rail links to London, many Tring residents daily commute from Tring Station into Euston Station to work in London, passing through various other stations on the way, including Hemel Hempstead, which was the home of Bovingdon poisoner Graham Young, who featured in the earlier episode this series of the show that was written by Julia herself, and Bushy, which is both the birthplace of the flamboyant, jacket-wearing, former Conservative politician Michael Portillo, but pop trivia quiz, it's also the location of Bushy Mead School, where a young George Michael met a young Andrew Ridgeley who went on to form 80s pop duo Wham. Choose life, eh? Now Tring Station is actually one and a half miles east of the town, due to objections raised at its planning stages in the former half of the 19th century by local titled landowners who didn't want a railway line running through their land. Now money talks, doesn't it? And so the station was sited at an alternative location. However, the people of Tring were so keen to have the railway station built near to the town that they raised money themselves to help pay towards the land and also to build a new road from the station to the town which today still exists as Station Road because what else are you going to call it? More than 170 years after Station Road opened to join Tring Station to the town It was along this route on the 23rd of June 2009 that the shadowy figure of Edwin Rist wheeled his suitcase along the pavement heading for his selected destination. Having climbed the 26 steps from Tring's station platform up to the street level, he headed past the former Royal Hotel and continued over the Grand Union Canal Bridge until just after Beggar's Lane, the street lighting ended and the road quickly became isolated and difficult to navigate due to the uneven pavement at this point even in the height of summer there was little ambient light due to the trees that were overhanging the road to such an extent that they met in the middle along the route there were only one or two buildings with woods either side and that evening was also a new moon meaning that the area looked even darker than normal so Edwin wrist when unnoticed as he trekked towards Tring Town Centre. About 35 minutes after leaving the station, he'd reached the 16th century pub called the Robin Hood, which marks the start of Tring's High Street. Heading up here, Edwin passed the memorial gardens on the left-hand side, and shortly afterwards, an old manor house set back from the road called Tring Park, before eventually turning left and heading through a narrow tarmac lane known locally as Bank Alley. He walked onwards for five more minutes until he finally arrived at the back of his destination the ornithological centre and library of Tring's Natural History Museum. The museum itself is housed in an impressive red brick Victorian building with half-timbered gables and it contains one of the finest private collections of natural history specimens in the world. It's a collection that was acquired over many years by Lionel Walter Rothschild who is known as Walter the son of Nathan Mayer Rothschild, First Baron Rothschild, who resided at Tring Park Manor House in the 19th century, which today houses a school for the performing arts called Tring Park School. Nathan Rothschild, or Natty as he was more commonly known, was head of the internationally renowned Rothschild & Sons Bank and was seriously loaded they'd make Iron Man look brassic. And whilst it's difficult to imagine today how rich Rothschild & Sons Bank and the Rothschild family themselves actually were, the bank was renowned for lending money to foreign governments and large organisations and also funded enormous projects such as the building of the Suez Canal. Now you've got to have a few quid spare to do that, haven't you? It's an understatement then to say that Natty's eldest son Walter was an interesting and unusual character. Although he was considered to be a frail and delicate child as a man he stood six feet three inches and weighed 22 stone. He never married instead keeping a series of mistresses and for his entire life experienced difficulties with his speech, his eye contact and the ability to interact with other people. Today it seems likely that he was on the autistic spectrum, being a creature of routine with both an amazing memory and a keen attention to detail. He also preferred to follow his own agenda, showing little awareness of how others might view him. Now fortunately, despite Walter being considered a bit odd by many people, his differences and obsessions were appreciated and nurtured by his parents, particularly by his mother Emma. She persuaded her husband that Walter was far too delicate to be sent away to boarding school, as would typically be expected for someone of his class and gender at the time, so instead he was tutored at home. It was this that helped her develop his lifelong fascination and enormous expertise in understanding animals. By the age of 13 Walter showed such a wide and detailed knowledge of the natural world that he'd attracted the attention of the keeper of zoology at the Natural History Museum in London who nurtured the boy's interests further. Walter's ultimate dream was to have living animals who were free to wander around Tring Park as well as having taxidermied specimens in a nearby museum that people could study. With this ambition in mind, and money of course being no object, Walter began to fill the grounds of his family's home with live animals from all corners of the world. He had all sorts, from wolves to emus. There's even reportedly a photo of Walter sitting astride a giant tortoise holding a lettuce leaf at the end of a long stick in an attempt to get the tortoise to take him for a ride. And he used zebras, as other people would use horses. So it's probably fair to say that during his life, Walter Rothschild was considered to be a bit eccentric. But because of his interest and expertise in natural history, he also became known as a world-renowned expert and collector of animal specimens. He collected such a sheer amount of living and preserved specimens that a museum was eventually built in Tring Park grounds to house this which opened to the public as Tring Museum in 1892, and today still attracts more than a million visitors each year as it became a branch of London's Natural History Museum. Today, you enter the building into the retained original Victorian splendour of Gallery 1, A large room of taxidermised exhibits from Walter Rothschild's curated collection, including a stuffed polar bear, a lion, and more birds than you'd expect to find in one of Ken Barlow's little black books. that you refer to as little, but really must be thicker than the yellow pages, because he's had more grumble than you and I have had hot dinners, hasn't he? See the post in the group's Facebook page for testament to that. This room then leads on to more unusual exhibits, such as a pair of fleas dressed up as your stereotypical Mexicans, sombreros, ponchos and all that. And whilst who wouldn't want to see that, it was a different part of the museum that was to be the focus of Edwin Rist's attention. A grey, 1960s built wing adjacent to the main museum, where the ornithological collection and library is housed. This building or rather the many thousands of bird skins stored inside it was the focus of Edwin Rist's interest and the reason for him being stood outside the museum on that summer night in 2009. Edwin was planning a heist and for a museum in a quiet little town it wasn't the first time it had been targeted. Way back in 1975, more than 10,000 eggs were stolen over a five-year period by a career criminal and fantastically named serial thief called Melvin Shorthose, who was confined to a wheelchair following severe injuries he'd gleaned during a previous theft he was involved in, the theft of electrical cabling. Gaining the trust of museum staff as a frequent visitor, Shortoes had visited the museum on 85 occasions over this period, each time pocketing more and more different specimens of bird egg, which he then sold on to collectors for a large profit. After being caught, he was tried and sentenced to two years in prison, a custodial sentence which didn't mitigate the loss of the eggs to the scientific community, which took them many years to try to sort out and to come to terms with. Then, two years after the case we're discussing this episode, at 4.30am on the 27th of August 2011, thieves smashed through the front doors of the Natural History Museum, where they targeted two particular taxidermy specimens, an Indian rhino and a white rhino, both dating from approximately 1900. The thieves approached the rhinos with a large hammer, which they then used to remove their horns believing them to be worth approximately £240,000. Now fortunately, unbeknownst to the thieves, three months prior to the robbery, the real rhino horns had been replaced with replicas made of resin, and it was these fake horns that were taken. Staff at the museum had replaced the horns because they were aware of the increase in rhino horn thefts from auction houses and museums all across Europe, which were increasing due to the high prices that such items can fetch. These horns go for particularly high prices in Asia, where they believe to have powerful medicinal properties and could be sold for higher prices than precious metals and are worth more financially than stones such as diamonds or even drugs like heroin fortunately the perpetrator of the rhino horn robbery was caught and on the 17th of january 2012 darren bennett from leicester was charged with theft and was subsequently sentenced to 10 months in prison following bennett's conviction the museum placed signs up next to the rhino heads that are on display there stating that the horns are fake and are of no value whilst also reminding people that sadly the market for rhino horns threatens the survival of every rhino out in the wild. But in 2009, it wasn't rhino horns, but birds that was again the focus of a thief. Inside the ornithological collection and library are rows and rows of tall white metal cabinets, which there are about 1,500 in total, and which contained thousands upon thousands of historic birdskins of great historical and scientific importance. During the Victorian and Edwardian eras, bird feathers were not only of interest to naturalists such as Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin, but they were also collected by fashionistas of the day due to the trend for women to wear colourful bird plumes and even hold birdskins on their outfits. Like Ladies' Day at the races, I suppose. As fashions changed, the commercial market for birdskins decreased, resulting in laws being codified to control the import and export of feathers between countries including the USA and the UK. Whilst this did not completely stop the more unscrupulous people poaching exotic birds to sell, the demand eventually decreased and the practice gradually dwindled. Well for fashion it did anyway, because there was however an additional group of individuals who were equally as interested in bird feathers fly fishermen so whilst wealthy women were wearing feathers to show off how fashionable they were wealthy landowners were also using the feathers from exotic birds to create flies for their sport and therefore the feathers for exotic birds became even rarer and even more highly sought after The interest of recreating flies didn't diminish over the years, and with the birth of the internet and auction sites such as eBay, sellers of ancient feathers were able to link to prospective buyers, but with finite sources, this resulted in fly tyres looking elsewhere for their resources. For the criminally minded, one extra source of brightly coloured historic bird feathers for this very purpose were museums of natural history. And this is how Edwin Rist fits into the story. Rist was obsessed with historic bird feathers and skins, fully aware of their artistic and commercial value. And it was for this reason that he crept up Bank Alley in Tring towards the Natural History Museum on that summer night in 2009. He was looking to steal some of the ancient skins and feathers that had been collected over a century earlier by naturalists such as Alfred Wallace and Darwin as we say and which now were stored in the museum's ornithological collection. So who was Edwin Rist and why was a 20 year old flute player so obsessed with fly tying and historic bird skins that were held at Tring? edwin was the eldest of two sons born in 1988 to curtis and lynn wrist in new york state homeschooled by their parents who were themselves highly educated self-employed people edwin and his brother anton were highly intelligent and were allowed and encouraged to follow their own interests which included all sorts of activities learning languages studying natural history and developing the musical talents Edwin in particular would develop a deeply held interest in natural history. His fascination for fly tying stemmed from his father, who himself had been bitten by the fly tying bug whilst researching an article he was writing for Discover magazine entitled The Physics of Flycasting. Edwin and his brother soon both developed a shared enthusiasm for the subject with their father and this was supported by Curtis and Lynn who helped them to purchase some cheap and cheerful resources with which to pursue their new hobby. Before long, both boys became so well practiced and enthusiastic for this pastime that they became serious and well known faces in the fly tying community. It was particularly an obsession for Edwin he was by this time winning prizes for his fly tying creations, and as his reputation as a fly tire continued to grow, fly tires from around the world were eventually aware of Edwin Rist's name and skills in the area, like a pinnacle to reach that isn't it, or what But something was frustrating Edwin though. The dream for any authentic fly tyre is to follow the exact instructions, or recipes as they're commonly known, of the real historic flies that were made by their Victorian and Edwardian counterparts. But as they didn't have access to the real exotic feathers that were listed in these Victorian fly recipes, Edwin and Anton were forced to use subs, or substitute feathers. They had all the other gear, the tools, the gloves, the historic books, but they could only fantasise about what it would be like to use real, exotic feathers, rather than these substitutes. But fly tying was never going to be a full-time career for Edwin, and it was music that he decided to pursue at university, so he auditioned for the Royal Academy of Music in London, and was awarded a place there, starting in September 2007. He made the move over to the UK, where he soon settled into his student accommodation, making new friends and getting himself a girlfriend. But he never forgot his passion for fly tying though, and in his first term at the Royal Academy, he contacted members of the British fly fishing community as he wished to attend the British Fly Fishing International Convention, which was going to be taking place in Staffordshire the following year to catch up with several of his fly tying acquaintances. Now this was very much second best for Edwin, for he wasn't able to demonstrate his own skills at the show, having none of his equipment with him due to the strict laws about importing such equipment from the US. However, to make matters worse, when he tried to go to the show on the day, a train delay meant that he missed it, and this prevented him from catching up with his acquaintances from the fly tying community. His frustration of not being able to show off his tying skills to their full advantage was fuelled even further when he was invited to show off his tying skills at a meeting of the Bristol Fly Dressers Guild which was to take place in February 2008. Now the frustrating thing for Edwin was that he didn't have any of his specialist materials with him and therefore it was down to the organiser to sort out some equipment and examples that Edwin could borrow for his demonstration. In view of this frustration, Edward now began to think how he could bring his own collection over from America or how he could start to develop a new collection now that he was living in the UK. He tried looking for exotic feathers around junk shops and at auctions but found nothing adequate and his mind kept returning to the exhibits that he'd seen at one of his favourite places to visit, London's Natural History Museum. Whenever he'd visited there, Edwin's mind was cast to what he really wanted to see the exhibits that were out of bounds to most visitors, those that were held in the museum's vaults, stored away from the viewing public. He knew that some of these were hundreds of years old, and included the feathers of birds that were now extinct. In fact, the feathers of 95% of the world's known species of bird were stored by the Natural History Museum, and for Edwin, this was dead bird porn. So a plan started to form in his mind. By looking at the museum's website he learned that certain people could view these private collections by prior appointment including students and art types with a particular interest or specialism in this field so on the 9th of february 2008 edwin sent an email to the natural history museum asking permissions to photograph these private collections on behalf of a fictional friend who was described as being a student at oxford university to verify edwin's credentials the museum asked for the university email address of this friend, and they then contacted the address to ensure that Edwin's inquiry was genuine. Now, unbeknown to the museum's authorities, however, Edwin had generated a fake email account, and therefore, When they asked the friend to confirm what Edwin had said, the email actually went to Edmund's fake email address, which he responded to himself as his fictional Oxford student friend and confirmed that Edwin was acting on his behalf, stating that he would like him to be able to view and photograph the bird skins and feathers that they held in their collection. This was more than enough for Natural History Museum staff, and once Edwin's credentials had been supposedly confirmed, arrangements were made to enable him to see the private collection in the museum's vaults during the following month. In March 2008, Edwin kept his appointment at the Natural History Museum, and with his credentials now verified, he looked for the ornithology archives in order to meet with the curator as planned. However, he was to discover that he was actually in the wrong place, the ornithological collection being actually housed some 40 miles away from london in tring having to reschedule his appointment tring museum now became the focus of edwin's obsession and the treasures that the ornithological collection there could offer him over the following months due to musical rehearsals and long university holidays back home in the u.s it wasn't until the 5th of november 2008 that edwin could finally journey to tring to see the collection. The visit had been arranged beforehand and after signing into the visitors book upon arrival as requested he was then given free rein to wander the museum. Without being closely supervised he spent over two hours photographing the cabinets as well as some of the corridors and windows around the museum pictures that mapped the layout and that would come in particularly useful to Edwin in the future. It's not known at what exact point he decided that he would actually break into the museum to steal the bird skins that he could then sell on to the flight iron community, but it was for this reason that almost nine months later, Edwin Rist was walking up Bank Alley in Tring on the night of the 23rd of June 2009. Edwin had selected the date of the robbery to ensure that it would take place before the end of term, when he was again planning to go back to the USA. He'd also decided that rather than rob a few at a time a full-on heist was his only option as this would enable him to collect enough of the skins in number and variety to support his fly iron well into the future as well as to purchase his golden flute. As the plan became more concrete Edwin began looking at maps of Tring online in order to plan his route to reduce the risk of being detected as he broke into the museum. He soon settled upon quiet bank alley as being his best option, as the only thing that separated here from the back of the ornithological collection was a barbed wire topped wall which he felt could be easily negotiated. Enthused and excited now, Edwin began a list on his computer entitled Plan for a Museum Invasion to prepare everything that he would need. Although this started out as only being half serious, over time the plan began to become more real and real in his mind and he also started gathering the equipment that he would need. Using good old eBay, he started getting together a robbery pack that included a torch and a diamond glass cutter. After months of planning and preparation, the 23rd of June 2009 came around, and having got the train from Euston and walked into Tring Town, Edwin was finally ready to commit the robbery. His journey up Bank Alley to the back of the museum's ornithological collection took just three minutes. Unseen and unheard, as he wheeled his suitcase across the broken tarmac. Using the wire cutters from his robbery kit, he cleared an area of barbed wire on top of the wall closest to the grey building. Pulling himself up adjacent to the nearest window, his attempts to gain entry to the building using the glass cutter were thwarted, however, when he dropped the equipment into the darkness and well out of reach. So he just grabbed a nearby stone and simply broke the window instead. Although this was noisier than planned, it fortunately did not attract the attention of local residents or the museum security. Edwin then squeezed himself and his wheeled suitcase through the window, which was a tight fit because these windows are small, designed to protect the exhibits from UV light pollution. Once through, he used his torch to light his way, retracing his steps from his previous legitimate visit to the museum and the memorised photographs he'd taken when he'd photographed the corridors. Finding the object of his search, the metal cabinets that he'd seen previously, Edwin systematically opened each of the desired ones in turn and started to fill his wheeled suitcase with bird skins. He initially selected those most suited to his purpose, however as time went on, excitement got the better of him and his original plan of selecting a modest amount of birds went out of the window. Given the scarcity of the species that he was handling and the risk that he was taking, Edwin's adrenaline was flowing and he gathered many more exhibits than he'd initially planned for or even anticipated. In total he took the skins of some 299 birds including 16 different species and subspecies all of them rare scientific specimens and even some that were completely extinct. Now to give you an idea of the worth of this here it's estimated that at the time a single skin of a rare bird could achieve over 2,000 pounds and that packs of such feathers could fetch an even greater value on the fly tying market. And now, all Edwin had to do was get out of the museum's building undetected, sell the birdskins, and his dream of becoming an internationally renowned flute player, complete with his golden flute, would be complete. So with his evening's work finished, Edwin made sure that all drawers were closed, and that the place looked untouched and then retraced his steps out of the museum and back into Bank Alley, wheeling his now priceless suitcase down to the High Street, then back towards Tring Station. But having made the walk back, he found that he'd been in the museum much longer than anticipated, over some three hours in total, and had therefore missed the last train back to Euston, which had left not long after midnight. The first London Midland train back to Euston wasn't until almost 4am, so wrist was therefore stuck at tring station waiting for more than three hours for the first morning train of the 24th of june to arrive not a master criminal this by any means however he did manage to make it back to london unseen and undetected once he was safely back in the capital he made his way back across town to his student digs where he wheeled his suitcase beyond the security of his front door, and buoyantly went to sleep done in after the previous night's activities. But his mood might have been less buoyant, had he been aware that in breaking the window to gain entry when his glass cutter Ocean's Eleven malarkey went tits up, he had actually triggered an alarm which the security guard hadn't initially noticed. Not initially seeing the flashing light that warned him of the break-in, once he had spotted it, He made a sweep of the building, and finding the broken window, contacted both police and the senior curator of the collection, Mark Adams. When they arrived, they also conducted a search, and feeling that the area looked tidy and undisturbed, they concluded that nothing serious had occurred apart from a broken window, which, I don't know, is pretty serious in a museum of rare stuff, isn't it? The most scientifically valuable artefacts such as Darwin's finches were all accounted for but as every drawer in the vast collection couldn't be checked obviously it was agreed that the broken window didn't constitute anything too serious and therefore the robbery initially went undetected for 34 days anyway. On the 28th of July 2009, a researcher contacted the museum requesting the opportunity to see the Indian Crows bird skins that were held in the collection. And when they arrived and were taken to the cabinet where the skins should have been stored, they shared in the horror of museum staff in finding out that these cabinets were almost empty. In disbelief, Mark Adams and his team checked all of the other cabinets, finding the same devastating results. Police were immediately contacted again And the case was assigned to Detective Sergeant Adele Hopkin. Despite her being a very experienced officer, it took detailed explanations from museum experts to help her understand just how significant the loss of the bird skins actually was. Now, the theft was a puzzling one. It was a very specialist haul to have stolen, but nobody really knew the thief or thieves' M.O. here. They didn't even know how long the skins had been missing for. The museum's CCTV was checked but nothing apparent could be pinpointed and bar an obvious incident, the CCTV was wiped every 28 days so there was no opportunity for this to provide any clues as they didn't know exactly when the theft had occurred. And with Tring being a quiet relatively safe time, at that time there was no CCTV in the high street so the investigation started with the only known type of recent incident, the broken window at the museum and boom a number of potential clues were found discovered nearby to the window was the dropped glass cutter a fragment of latex glove even a small amount of blood that were all bagged tagged and sent for forensic testing Detective Sergeant Hopkin also contacted the UK's National Wildlife Crime Unit, a specialist department that assists in preventing and detecting wildlife crime by the gathering and sharing of intelligence and offering consultation to police forces around the UK. She requested that any information pertaining to the exportation of exotic bird skins be shared with her in case it shed some light upon the robbery. Meanwhile, Edwin was by this time thinking about how to dispose of his haul most lucratively with minimal risk of detection. He decided to dispose of some through his fly tying contact and some through eBay itself. So with this plan in mind, he plucked the most desirable feathers from the birdskins using tweezers and put them into plastic bags in preparation for online auction sales. He then locked the remaining birdskins and feathers into his wardrobe and with term having ended, returned back to the usa for the summer now this hadn't been the millennium dome heist or anything and so news of the robbery wasn't wide-reaching i mean after all how many people are really interested in the theft of some old bird skins from a small museum But by September 2009, when Edwin had returned to London to begin his third year at the Royal Academy, news of the robbery had started to trickle out into the fly tying community and one person who'd heard of it was Edwin's now 16-year-old brother, Anton. Anton phoned Edwin excitedly to tell him about the robbery and Edwin now must have started properly bricking it. He subsequently ordered 1,100 small plastic bags and an additional 500 medium-sized ones with which to sell individual feathers and clumps of feathers that were to be cut off the bird skins with the skin still attached. Using the specialist website, classicflytying.com, Edwin placed an advertisement offering rare Indian crow feathers for sale, but using the appropriate Latin names for each subspecies. The prices he offered these for ranged from $80 to $120 for 10 feathers, depending upon the size and type of feathers that were being purchased. They were all photographed for the advert and were described as being Super A quality. Now Edwin didn't try to hide his identity in any way here, and even went so far as to put in the advert that he needed to sell the feathers to buy a flute. I don't know if he stressed it was golden or not, but that's what he said. After only two days so many people had responded to this advert that he was forced to buy more plastic bags to ship them in and nearly all of the Indian crow feathers he'd stolen had gone. So buoyed by this Edwin decided to try a different method to offload his next batch instead of going through a specialist forum he simply used his ebay account flute player 1988. He also sold these feathers openly, meeting people who'd emailed him to purchase the feathers, and marketing his ways in flight iron shows that he attended. To try to superficially cover his tracks, Edwin came up with a different story each time to explain his sudden supply of rare goods. However, consumers were not always bothered by the legality of their purchase, and with Edwin being a well-known member of the flight iron community, the story behind the provenance of his feathers was trusted by his peers. But whilst business was booming for Edwin, one or two people did start to become suspicious. The feathers were so extremely rare, who was supplying Edwin wrist. Meanwhile, back in Tring, there were still few leads about the theft, and museum staff were now asked to review their emails to consider anyone who'd shown a particular interest in the exhibits. Now tantalisingly, this pool included emails from two members of the fly tying community, both who knew Edwin, who'd previously asked the museum of any skins that might be for sale. Attention was also made to people who'd previously visited the vaults in the months before the robbery, using the visitor's book to establish who'd been there. But Edwin Rist's name still didn't flag up until May 2010, when he first came to the attention of Detective Sergeant Hopkin. Hertfordshire police were contacted at that time by a police officer and hobby fly tire from Northern Ireland. He'd recently attended a fly fair in the Netherlands and had got talking to a fellow enthusiast named Andy Bokholt, who was keen to show the officer some of his creations all made from extremely rare feathers. When Andy revealed that he'd purchased several of these from England the police officer's internal spy descent started to twitch. He'd read about the train museum robbery and began to wonder whether the skins in front of him had actually come from a museum, such was the quality and rarity of them. When he returned home, he began online searching and found several postings for rare skins and feathers for sale, all posted under the eBay username of Flute Player 1988 it was at this point that he contacted Hertfordshire Police to tell them about this potential lead. Detective Sergeant Hopkin, listening, took this information seriously. First, linking the username Flute Player 1988 to an account holder named Edwin Wrist, and then looking into Edwin and his background. She also contacted Tring Museum and asked them to look through their visitor's book to see whether the name Edwin Rist was present. And after looking through 200 or so names of individuals who'd all asked to have private viewings of the ornithological collection during the previous year, they discovered that, yes indeed, Edwin Rist had visited the library in November 2008, seven months before the robbery. But when Detective Sergeant Hopkin contacted the Royal Academy to ask about Edwin, she learned that he'd gone back to the USA for the summer holidays and had moved out of his student accommodation. Edwin returned to the UK in September 2010 and having secured new student digs in Willisden Green, he set about marketing his remaining skins and feathers for sale. His dream was still to purchase his golden flute, and he was well on the way to fulfilling this ambition. He also updated his new address onto his eBay account in order to continue sales of the feathers and skins. But unbeknown to Edwin, eBay had previously received a message from Detective Sergeant Hopkin requesting Edwin's new contact details. They subsequently passed on Edwin's Willisden Green address to her, and she was then able to secure a search warrant for the property the net was now closing in on Edwin. Just before 8am on the 12th of November 2010, the door to his Willesden Green flat shook with a loud banging and a request for him to open the door to the police. Already up for an early rehearsal he had to go to, when he opened the door, he found himself face to face with DS Hopkin and two colleagues from Hemel Hempstead Police Station. When the officers explained to Edwin why they were there, he immediately confessed to the robbery and took them straight through to his bedroom where his girlfriend was still sleeping. He then pointed to some large cardboard boxes at the side of the room which were found to contain a still large stash of the stolen skins and feathers. Bizarrely, in front of the police officers and his girlfriend, he additionally confessed to the theft of a television from the Royal Academy of Music. As we said before, this is no master criminal we're discussing here. Edwin was subsequently arrested and more than a year after his heist he was now returning to Hertfordshire in a police car for questioning. The student flat was processed as a crime scene and the evidence that remained there was bagged and labelled. His digital footprint was also processed with his camera and laptop being taken as evidence. He was taken to a custody suite in Watford's Shady Lane Central Police Station where he was processed, photographed and had his DNA taken for comparison with the blood that had been found at Train Museum. Edwin, now with his ass having properly gone due to the gravity of the situation became highly distressed and anxious and was left to stew for a couple of hours before being taken into an interview room to be questioned by D.S. Hopkins. He provided all of the information that was requested of him and refused to have a solicitor present. After being questioned, where he admitted everything and folded faster than Superman doing his washing, he was released from custody with further instructions to attend a future hearing a fortnight later at Hemel Hempstead Magistrates Court. Meanwhile, the police officers who were involved in investigating the theft were left to follow Edwin's digital footprint to gather further evidence about the robbery there wouldn't be a trial with Edwin having readily confessed to the crime he now simply awaited sentencing having previously developed a false sense of security that he wouldn't be found out at all Edwin was now having to pay for the consequences of his actions so whilst he was being questioned staff at Tring Museum were celebrating the good news that the culprit had been found and they were told that at least some of the skins had been located but when museum staff arrived at Watford Central Police Station to ascertain the damage to the hoard, it wasn't good news. Whilst the 174 of the stolen skins remained intact, and this represented just over half the amount that were originally stolen, only a third of these total skins had their original labels attached, which gives the artifacts this scientific value. For some species and subspecies, all of the skins had had their labels removed, meaning that many of the findings were now lost to history. Edwin had plucked many of the skins with tweezers to make up the plastic bags of mixed feathers to sell on eBay, and he'd also cut off sections of bird skin with the feathers attached for sales. This meant that they were now of no use to the scientific community. With the tags attached, bird feathers from centuries ago could previously have been studied for information about their DNA and their environment but with the scientific tags removed, these opportunities had now gone forever. After he'd been released from Watford Police Station, Edwin returned to his student accommodation and realised that it was now time to confess his crime to his parents. Although they were shocked and angry, his parents were supportive of him and rallied round, and despite having their own money worries, his mother planned to fly to the UK for the sentencing. The family worked out how to get a lawyer for him and even considered whether they could raise funds to buy back some of the skins and feathers as a gesture of remorse and goodwill for the museum. Meanwhile, Edwin's life continued otherwise rather as normal and he returned to his studies with nobody at the Royal Academy being aware of what he'd done. But he mustn't have been able to concentrate too well and he must have been worried though, mustn't he? I mean, having worked so hard to become a professional musician what would they think of him now being a convicted criminal would this put an end to his career would he even have to leave the uk on the 26th of november 2010 edwin appeared at hemel Hempstead magistrates court charged with burglary and money laundering to which he pleaded guilty to both charges His solicitor Andy Harmon defended his client by stating that Edwin had simply made a childish mistake and that his entire M.O. was very basic and amateurish. Now the judge however didn't accept this argument and it was subsequently agreed that the case would have to be heard at the Crown Court in St Albans. Edwin's crimes were then reported in the national press where he was described as acting out a James Bond fantasy by the Daily Mail obviously without the ace cars and gadgets and shagging and all that. But the man with the golden flute springs to mind for a great film title here. These things write themselves sometimes, don't they? They really do. The story then, of course, reached the fly tying community, where it spread like wildfire, and they turned on Edwin. Whilst community members had been happy to buy rare feathers from him without asking too many questions about where they came from, they now turned cheek and slated him for the robbery he was trolled all over online flytyne forums with his brother anton who himself was still a member of these forums forced to defend his brother from online abuse and rants it reached such an extent that one of these sites classicflytying.com recorded some 4,500 comments about Edwin's crime forcing site admins to take the threads down and request members to not post anything about the Tring robbery and the stolen skins On the 14th of January 2011 then Edwin stood before the Honourable Mr Justice Stephen Gulick at St Albans Crown Court where, following an exchange between the judge and Peter Dalson part of Edwin's defence team, the case was adjourned to enable the defence time to have a mental health assessment conducted on Edwin with specific consideration being given to the possibility of him having an autistic spectrum disorder. To conduct the assessments, the defence lawyers commissioned autism expert Simon Baron-Cohen a professor of developmental psychopathology at the University of Cambridge, director of the world-renowned Autism Research Centre in Cambridge, and a leading researcher into the subject. Now, if his surname sounds familiar, it's because he's also a cousin of the comedian Sacha Baron Cohen, aka Borat, or, depending on how old you are, Ali G. Boyakasha! Had to say that. You can't not say that if you mention Ali G simon baron cohen's report on edwin concluded that he was indeed displaying clear signs of an autistic spectrum disorder in particular that his behaviors were consistent with a diagnosis of asperger syndrome he explained to the court how individuals with asperger syndrome can make poor choices without being aware of the full impact of these and this can include breaking the law Baron Cohen stated that Edwin had not been financially motivated in committing the robbery, apart from wanting his golden flute of course, and instead that he wanted to promote a golden age for tires similar to how the pastime had been seen 150 years previously. His clinical opinion was that Edwin became so driven by his obsessional interest in fly tying, using the original rare bird feathers warranted by the recipes of his forebearers, that he was compelled to break into the museum without considering the longer term consequences of his actions. He described how Edwin had subsequently learnt a sobering lesson due to his arrest, due to the media's reporting of the case, and how his reputation as a leading fly tyer was now compromised within that community. In his professional opinion, Edwin would be highly unlikely to commit a similar crime in the future and that rather than a prison sentence, he should receive psychological support. On the 8th of April 2011, Edwin once again presented himself at St Albans Crown Court for sentencing and now with a formal diagnosis in place from a leading expert in the field, his actions had to be considered from a non-neurotypical perspective. He'd already admitted his guilt, so the purpose of the hearing was to determine the most appropriate sentence for him. Prosecutor David Crimes QC, what an absolutely fantastic name that is for a beak, for anyone involved in legality isn't it, was pushing for a custodial sentence to be given to Edwin due to the severity of the robbery and its impact upon the scientific community. Whereas defence barrister Peter Dahls QC aimed to emphasise the mitigating circumstances to enable Edwin's punishment to be reduced. David Crimes dismissed Simon Baron Cohen's perspective that the robbery was committed purely for artistic gain, instead stating that financial motive was indeed clearly at the heart of the crime. He described how Edwin wanted money for his golden flute, for his student living expenses and even to help out his parents who were themselves not comfortably off. He also described how Edwin had, in addition to the theft of the birdskins, admitted previous criminal behaviour having taken a television set from the Royal Academy of Music. Mr. Crimes reported that the Tring Museum robbery had been carefully planned and successfully executed and introduced to the court 27 pieces of evidence that had been identified by D.S. Hopkin and her team, including the document on Edwin's computer entitled, Plan for a Museum Invasion, which is pretty telling really, isn't it? Also described was Edwin's visit to Tring Museum in November 2008, the occasion on which he pretended to be photographing exhibits on behalf of a fictional Oxford University friend, when in reality he'd taken photos not only of the bird skins, but of the museum interior layout and potential points of entry for the robbery. He stressed the wider impact of the theft, describing it as not only a loss to the UK, but also to the wider scientific world. Dr. Richard Lane, the Natural History Museum's Director of Sciences, echoed this, stating in a report to the court that Edwin had stolen knowledge from humanity, I quote, as without the original scientific tags, many of the skins were rendered worthless. Additionally, out of the skins that had been returned, many of these were damaged. The information that had been collected decades, and in some cases centuries before, could not be replicated and therefore was irreplaceable and priceless. For the defence, Peter Darlson simply used a succession of character witnesses from the Royal Academy of Music and the world of Flightiron in his description of Edwin to the court. Edwin's newly identified diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome was also used heavily to explain his behaviours as being uncharacteristic and driven by obsession. So Mr Justice Gulick whilst acknowledging that the crime was a natural history disaster of world proportions Referred to his diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome and the report by Baron Cohen, stating that it was this neurodevelopmental disorder that was the basis for his behaviour, a diagnosis that proved to be crucial to the defence argument. The judge also referenced other crimes in which a late diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome had resulted in criminal behaviour when the perpetrator had not understood the impact or social consequences of their actions. In particular a case involving a 20 year old man called Simon Gibson was cited from the year 2000 in which Gibson and two of his friends broke into a Bristol cemetery and exploring the Victorian tombs broke into a crypt and removed bones including a skull. They then returned on two further occasions bringing alcohol and candles into the crypt and taking pictures of themselves partying within this setting. When they had the pictures developed they accidentally dropped some of them in Broadmead shopping centre in Bristol where they were found and reported to the police by security staff. Gibson was eventually tried and received an 18 month prison sentence but successfully appealed this because of his diagnosis of having Asperger syndrome and as a result being released. Judge Gullick drew parallels between the cases of Gibson and Edwin Rist and in sentencing Edwin, he gave him a 12-month prison sentence suspended for two years as well as a supervision order. But Edwin was also required to present himself at a later date to ascertain how much he would be fined for committing the crime. It was reported that several members of the fly tying community who'd bought skins from Edwin in all good faith returned these skins to the museum. One member was so incensed at what Edwin had done that he even rebought the skin he'd sold on at a profit so he could return it. People were understandably unhappy about the whole situation. A number of fly tyres threatened to sue Edwin and made claims against him for gaining money under false pretenses. A number also expressed their cynicism about his diagnosis of Asperger syndrome, reporting that because he had a wide circle of friends and a long term girlfriend, They didn't feel he could possibly have Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, it doesn't kind of work that way, does it, armchair doctors? It's a condition, it doesn't make you repulsive and a friendless oddball at all. As punishment for the robbery, Edwin was eventually fined a grand total of £125,150 under a proceeds of crime confiscation order which was the estimated monetary value of half of what he would have received from the total sale of all of the bird skins the total value of this haul which was calculated by an auctioneer to be £250,300 was however considered by many to be a serious underestimation of the true value of what Edwin had stolen to make a good start on paying his fine off however edwin was found to have more than thirteen thousand pounds worth of ready funds in his bank account pretty incredible for a student living in london really normally lives on super noodles and fresh air and bugger all and he was allowed a further six months to pay back the rest of the money he wasn't penalized by the royal academy for his crimes graduating and receiving his diploma from them on the 30th of june of that year The theft of birdskins from other natural history museums has now become such a severe issue that ten years after Edwin Rist's robbery, an international conference was convened by Tring's Dr Priest-Jones to develop an online forum by which curators can now communicate and share intelligence regarding the forces that might result in birdskins and feathers being taken from museums. The forum, which is called eBeak, stands for Electronic Bulletin Board for European Avian Curators, was unfortunately not available to staff at Tring in 2009, and many of the skins targeted by Rist have never been recovered, and consequently have been lost to science, and therefore lost to the world forever. In terms of the impact his theft had upon the museum, out of the 299 bird skins he'd stolen, a hundred and two were recovered intact with their labels. Seventy-two were recovered but with no labels, and nineteen had been returned to the museum by members of the fly tying community. But none of these had the tags. This meant that after the police's investigation had concluded, hundred and six whole skins were still missing. With the new estimated value for just these missing skins being somewhere in the region of three hundred thousand pounds. Now this left several questions unanswered like, what had happened to these missing birdskins? Had they been sold or split up? Or had they been squirrelled away for sale at a later date? How did 299 birdskins fit into a suitcase and get lifted by a single individual through a window? Did Edwin have an accomplice to help with the robbery or with disposal? And overall, was he highly organised or just unbelievably lucky in other words was the heist more oceans 11 or one of our dinosaurs is missing i haven't seen that film in absolutely years thanks so much for mentioning that julia in his book about the wrist case called the feather thief author kirk wallace johnson gives a fantastically well-researched account of the robbery and attempts to answer the before post questions which became a bit of an obsession for him his book is the source from which much of the information to create the episode has been gathered and after describing the events of the robbery, he explains how using specialist technology, he managed to find a way of looking back over past pages of classic Within these pages he discovered that in the days leading up to Edwin's arrest, someone calling themselves Goku, had listed hundreds of pounds worth of rare and exotic bird skins for sale, also making several cryptic comments about the items that he was listing. Kirk developed some suspicions about Goku, noticing that the prominent forum member had disappeared from the forums after Edwin's arrest, and eventually traced him to be a Norwegian called Long Nguyen, I hope I've said that right, who admitted selling a small number of skins and some feathers on Edwin's behalf. Nguyen was a fly tying enthusiast who idolised Edwin, but who was considered to be in no way capable of masterminding the Tring heist. Edwin Rist confirmed this on a post on ClassicFlytying.com where he confirmed Nguyen was not complicit in the robbery and a confirmation he again repeated when Kirk Wallace Johnson interviewed him in person in the only interview he's ever given concerning the theft. Now the interview that Kirk conducted with Edwin is fascinating and as stated previously his book is a highly recommended read. I was that taken with the case when it was sent to me by Julia that I bought the book myself and I can agree it's fascinating. Within the interview, looking back on the events of 2009, Edwin stated that he doesn't really see himself as a thief and even when he was confronted with the evidence about the number of bird skins that were taken during the robbery, he was cagey about the details and what had become of the missing skins. Kirk stated of Edwin, He spoke like someone who knew he'd got away with it and who had help doing so. It's also the author's opinion that Edwin had clearly played the system and had indeed managed to fake his Asperger syndrome fooling some of the most learned names in doing so. He reportedly never spent a single night in prison for his crime and whilst he was ordered to pay back more than £100,000 it's not made clear whether he ever actually repaid this. A free man, Rist was awarded his diploma from the Royal Academy of Music as we said, and avoiding the press, changed his name and moved over to Germany, where he still performs music to this day. Now a quite bizarre postscript that i found to this tale, is that Rist now goes by the name Edwin Reinhard, and is a YouTuber who makes, I quote, heavy metal flute videos. Now you've got to go and have a look at that, haven't you? So I did, and sure enough, there he is, piping out things like the Game of Thrones theme. He even does Metallica's Master of Puppets. Have a look on YouTube by typing in his name, Edwin Reinhard, and you'll see him there in all of his flute-playing glory. I don't think one of them was golden, however. Now I found this tale an absolutely fascinating one. It was one I'd never come across before and the research Julia has done into it is sublime. I had to properly edit the account down to be able to fit it into the episode that you've just heard. But the whole account is so good and well researched that I'll be placing the full text of it alongside several location images relating to the episode up in a post on the show's website. I recommend the book mentioned, The Feather Thief, a link to which will be within the show notes this week, and my special thanks once again to Julia for all of her hard work to create this. I hope that you found it as intriguing and interesting a tale as I did. I told you this week's episode would be something a bit out of the show's norm, and I found that it struck a perfect balance from the absolute darkness and horror that we've featured on the show in recent weeks. I always love a change of direction such as this now and then. It keeps things fresh, and this is surely one of the most memorable crimes ever, isn't it? So I'm back on writing duties myself for next week's episode, which I hope you can all join me for. In the meantime, there's the usual discussion thread up in the show's Facebook group, should you want to get in touch and discuss it with myself, or Julia as she's an active member there, or through any of the show's social media links, I'm always about. Head over to the show's website to read the full fascinating article and have a look at some of the locations mentioned. Kudos once again, Julia, to your account. Absolutely brilliant. Just to reiterate then as well, if any of you guys have a case in mind that interests you that you think would make for a decent episode of the show, then by all means, please get in touch about it. Who knows, it may be one on the chalkboard already, or before you know it, you may just find yourself down the rabbit hole Researching and writing it up for the next listener episode. There is another one coming up before the end of this series of the show as well, because I love hosting them, I really do. Wrap up time here now, then, folks, but I shall be back, as I've said, next week with another episode, four in a row, and hopefully I'll catch you guys then. I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times. Thanks very much for joining me, and of course, Julia this week, all of you.